This is the Gear Patrol Podcast. In this episode, staff writer Zen Love, who is one half of Gear Patrol's team covering watches, joins me to explain a detail some of you may have noticed on luxury dive watches. It's that hole in the side. What exactly is it, and how is it used? Additionally, and sorry if this gives anything away, Zen and I also talk about why watch enthusiasts are especially enamored by watches with complex and, frankly, unnecessary functions. But whether or not you are a watch enthusiast, that brand of obsession probably sounds familiar to you. It's our fascination with products that we'll likely never use to their full potential, but just make us go, wow. So, I hope you enjoy this literal deep dive into the watch world with Zen. And if you do, I hope you'll also subscribe to the Gear Patrol podcast and give us a five-star review so more detail-obsessed enthusiasts can join in on the conversation. I'm Nick Caruso, and I'm glad you're here. Let's get started. Okay, so Zen, why do so many dive watches have a tiny hole in the side of their cases? Well, um, not a lot of dive watches have it, but some dive watches do. And just to get everything clear right off the bat, it's not common necessarily. It's on more hardcore dive watches, and it's not really a hole. It sounds fun to say there's a hole in the side of your dive watch, but to be clear, it's a valve made of uh, gaskets and a spring system. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, there's not actually, it's not like there's a tunnel that you can take a little light to and, and look at the the uh, the gears and springs inside your watch. What we're talking about is uh, this, every, anybody looks at the post uh, that we're referencing uh, on Gear Patrol, which is in the show notes, you'll see it's a Rolex. What kind of Rolex is that? Is it just a Submariner? It's a Sea Dweller. A Sea Dweller, which we're yes. going to get to. And in the, I guess on the nine o'clock position, there's a, a hole that looks like it's plugged with a, a small piece of steel. They call it a helium escape valve or a gas escape valve. There are a couple different uh, things that people call it. but Okay. And what does a helium escape valve do exactly? Well, this is, um, I suppose, what we're kind of going to be discussing for most of this uh, conversation about why it's needed, how it works, who uses it, what it does. Um, it lets helium that builds up inside the watch case um, vent, which is of course important because as we'll get into later, if it doesn't, under certain circumstances, it could end up causing the crystal of your watch to pop off, explode more or less. <laughs> We're literally releasing pressure from inside a watch, yeah, through a, through a valve rather than through the, the crystal or the case back or some other place you don't want popping off. So how does it work? Well, I think it's important to uh, discuss why it's needed first. I mean, okay. yeah, it, it's, a, it's a valve, so it, it operates in one direction, right? It's, um, this is not where necessarily the helium gets in to the watch. Helium molecules are extremely small, so if you have a waterproof dive watch that can, uh, you know, keep out all of the H2O mm-hmm. that it's meant to. Um, those are larger molecules, but helium molecules are really tiny and they get past, you know, even the, uh, you know, small, tiny little spaces that keep the water out and they get into your watch. 
in certain circumstances. What situation are we talking about here that helium is getting into a watch? This is this is um, this is the crux of the issue. Um, I think first, the first thing to say about this is is no average person is ever going to need this. Um, this is made for a specific uh, profession that is even specific among professional commercial divers. So even most commercial divers don't need this uh, particular feature, but the ones that do a type of diving called saturation diving okay. are the only ones who might use this. And it's who it was developed for in the 1960s. And this is when divers spend um, a long time underwater, often deep underwater. So uh, the time that, they, that their bodies need to decompress um, from absorbing the gases that they absorb while they're under that water pressure can be too long to be reasonably reasonable to do it multiple times like day after day. So they need to stay pressurized. Their bodies need to stay pressurized. And I believe that back in the day, this would all take place in a chamber underwater. So they would stay underwater at that pressure for, you know, um, nowadays it's, you know, they do it for a month Jeez. or so. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's one of these uh, extreme professions, extreme situations. It's really fun and interesting for watch lovers to, you know, think about this. Mm -hmm. um, today, um, it should be noted that these uh, compression chambers are often located above water. So they're not necessarily underwater. They're simply in this artificially pressurized environment. Got it. So this is kind of like, it's kind of akin to, I mean, obviously submarines would probably be a little closer, but this is kind of like doing a, a stint on the ISS or something like you're, it's in a very, very extreme environment. So exactly. yeah. The, so when a diver goes well underwater, the, the pressure of the deep compresses all sorts of gases and their body doesn't have an, a, an escape valve. So has to slowly off gas. Um, yeah over a, a long period of time, right? Like it takes a long time. And if you rush that process, you can really screw up your innards. Exactly, exactly. The, uh, the, it causes a uh, syndrome called the bends. It's, uh, it's, I think it's, it's common to describe the um, mechanics of it as uh, when you open a, a soda bottle and you have to open it slowly and let the gas escape slowly or else like explode and spill everywhere, right? Right. So you don't want that happening inside your body. Um, so that's why that's why even um, uh, recreational divers often have had to make these uh, stops along the way as they're going towards the surface. They have to take the time to let these gases escape their body uh, safely and, and slowly. For saturation divers, where it's a lot more extreme, it can take, uh, after a month of being in this... Um, environment it can take days uh for these gases to escape so they'll finish the job it'll, they'll be all done and they'll still have to just sit in these like really cramped quarters and you know with the, just like a bunch of dudes the funny thing is that uh the environment is pressurized and the gases are are different from what we normally breathe and the nitrogen a lot of the nitrogen is replaced with helium it, it's fun to imagine these like Often, you know, burly, 
hardcore dudes and, uh, you know, doing this like really tough work, yeah. living in like really, you know, extreme circumstances um, and having to live together. And he's like basically like where there's room to move between bunk beds, maybe. And like, that's it. Yeah. They're in these. Uh, I imagine it's kind of like the bunks on a submarine. Um, they've got equipment. They've got each other. It's dark it's probably a little dank because everything's wet and they've got dive watches this is uh the interesting yeah i mean it's interesting to imagine this um this scenario with these tough guys first of all the helium makes them talk like the chipmunks (laughs) i didn't even think of that and you know they say uh kind of get used to it after a while the watches um it's interesting like like other features on most modern watches, dive watches especially, mm-hmm. these are often interesting and historical, but not necessarily necessary. I mean, dive watches are not necessarily, even for um, commercial divers or uh, recreational divers. And what I'm what I'm told is that these saturation divers often will take these watches with them specifically for sentimental value and for keeping track of, you know, just for keeping their bearings of the time while they're in this strange environment. Okay. Um, and they're not necessarily even wearing them on their wrists while they're outside working. So that's, that's kind of something I was, I was wondering is that the dive watches that we typically, you know, cover on gear patrol or would think of as very premium dive watches are are quite expensive. Uh, you mentioned the Rolex Sea Dweller. What would the uh, typical price for a Sea Dweller be? Uh, well, the current production one is eleven thousand seven hundred. Um, the the one pictured there is is a vintage one. It's all scratched up. You'll see. Um, right. It's been actually diving. Sure, but so I'm picturing. I don't know. I guess I guess if you're a saturation diver, you're accustomed to a degree of risk. But I can't really imagine myself taking a twelve thousand dollar watch, you know, hundreds of meters under the sea for a long time. It seems seems like I'm going to screw it up, even if there is a you know a, a valve on it that's that's meant to protect its innards. This is kind of an ongoing uh, discussion within the watch community, you know, and, you know, watch lovers, people love their dive watches, but you know, when they get very expensive like this, it's a very reasonable question. I wouldn't probably want to do that. Um, right. And yet there are people that do that's well-documented. There are plenty of uh, people that dive with uh, submariners, uh, sea dwellers or Blanc pan 50 fathoms, what, what, and whatnot, even though okay. these are very expensive high end dive watches, there are people that use them like that. They don't need to, to be clear. Um, people have dive computers, even for recreational diving. Um, dive computers tell you everything you need to know. Some people like to take a dive watch underwater as a backup, just in case their dive computer fails. I imagine this is a this is a, a risky enough profession that these guys are probably paid pretty well and can maybe afford uh, a watch like this. Um, still don't know if I'd want to risk. Here's the thing is that um, you don't, even if you're a saturation diver, you probably don't need to worry too much about banging it up underwater. These guys, like I said, they often might take these uh, watches mostly for use during their downtime when they're in the 
uh, compression system. This is a feature, what's, what's interesting and what I think a lot of people don't really realize is that this is a feature, even though it's associated with watches with extreme water resistance, helium escape valve is a feature that is not used underwater. It doesn't function, it functions in a dry situation only. If you don't have one of these valves on your watch, the helium in the atmosphere of the saturation tank that you're living in will start to expand and will need to go somewhere and it will explode the crystal off the top. Right. It goes to the path of least resistance, which is going to be that crystal on top. So then the, the valve is there and there are a couple different kinds. There's manual and automatic. But first, can you just sort of describe how, how it works? Like, What are the components of the actual valve? You say there are gaskets and it must be a, a moving pin of some sort. It's, it's, it's honestly, I think it's, it's pretty simple. Um, it's, I, I believe the, the pressure, uh, simply pushes on a spring that opens the valve, you know, from the inside. This has, there's been, um, criticism that, uh, first of all, the, the valve needs to room to pop out a little bit. Um, so if yeah. the watch is stored someplace, uh, that could, uh, impede it, that would be an issue. Uh, people have criticized that. It's an opportunity for uh, dust and particles to get into the watch or um, uh, even moisture. That's the type of valve that you see on the side of the uh, sea dweller there, uh, where it's just a hole, where it's just, it does it automatically. And there are other kinds, um, most notably uh, a manual valve, which is essentially like a crown that you have to manually unscrew yourself, which is most common on the uh, Omega Seamaster. This one you have to remember to, uh, to unscrew it at the end. And I've, I've also been told that you could easily simply just unscrew the regular watch's crown and achieve the same venting of gases. So Yeah, that makes sense. So you raise an interesting point. If, if that opens, whether it's automatically or manually, you say there is potential for... Uh, dust and other particles to enter maybe some water i don't know you must have to have the a watch like this serviced like every time you use it right to make sure that it's in good shape I mean, it's it's probably a good idea to uh, service your watch regularly um but like like i said these are um these are kind of minor criticisms these these are things these are points that uh people have made about and some sometimes debate uh, about the pros and cons of these uh, helium escape valves. I can't say in the end whether or not it is a real concern. Um, that would take some, you know, probably some some studies. Yeah. And the other the other point is again that almost nobody in the world is in this situation. There are like the number of saturation divers that you know are active in the world at at any given time is. I believe it's in the hundreds and that's, you know, around the whole world. I'd be curious listeners, if anybody out there has any experience with this kind of diving or knows anyone or has any, uh, input, uh, get a hold of us. You can find us on social media or you can email me at podcast at gearpatrol.com. And now a quick ad break. This feature is in some sense, especially nowadays, it's, it's got a lot of marketing value. So it's, it's a cool, interesting feature right. that 
makes a dive watch seem more serious that you know despite the fact that nobody will use you can make the same argument about a 300 meter water resistance which is very typical so let's get into that we're talking about necessity in products is is a really deep conversation it's it's got a lot of meat there um because like what actually is necessary particularly in a watch or what i love cars like what do you actually need you know who needs a pickup truck who needs a massive suv who needs a military grade four by four um very few people and similar in the watch category so like who needs a dive watch that can survive helium compression and decompression at you know the most extreme uh levels um what do you what do you think about that what do you think about the 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 average consumer or any consumer purchasing watches with i don't know quote unquote useless features for them for me dive watches are a great example because they represent durability and toughness and the longevity you can expect out of it and the situations that you can use it in. I mean, if you're, if this is able to survive something much, much more extreme than I'll ever subject it to, then I can feel really comfortable doing whatever I want to do with it. Um, swimming in a pool or, a, you know, the beach or, or something like that. I'm, I can be a hundred percent certain that this dive watch is made for something much more extreme. Mm-hmm. And that that has plenty of value to me. And the helium escape valve is, I'm never going to be in the situation of a saturation diver. It's not that important to me. I mean, it's, but it's just it's just something that is a feature of some very tough watches. It's cool that it was designed for a real purpose, and that it can still be used for that purpose today. Qualities like this on a watch or a car or whatever it is, some some extreme tech, um, are kind of, like you say, extra insurance in some cases. But in a lot of cases, it's kind of just like, if you know, you know. Like, I'm celebrating that this technology is super cool, that I love how it works, that I'm you know enamored with the idea of it, and I love to just sort of like have it and celebrate it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Is that that kind of defines a lot of the watch world, right? And watch enthusiasm is very much along those lines. Exactly. Watches themselves are not necessary. Right. I, I will. I will still argue. <laughs> I will still argue that they are useful. Um, just just having the time on your wrist can be useful. And they're satisfying in, in multiple other ways, but mm-hmm. they're not necessary in, in themselves almost at all. Right. I mean, there, there might be some situations where people really do need to be able to check the time on their wrist easily. Um, but yeah, all of those things can apply to just the entire category of watches. What Within the category, what are some other specific features? I mean, we're talking about tool watches or other other features that are common to... Um, types of watches that are are kind of extreme in that way that sort of like advanced tech for lack of a better word what are some examples there there are all kinds of features that are not necessarily that are similarly useless but that um 
are neat to have and originate in some real practical, real world use. Um, chronographs are an example. They're a stopwatch. You can you can time your hard boiled egg with it nowadays, right? But you know, back in the day, they had these. Um, they have a tachometer scale around the edge that people use to uh, measure speed. They were used for racing, uh, you know, cars, airplanes, all kinds of things. Um, they have telemeter scales that were used. Um, you know, nowadays people say you can use them to measure how far a uh, a thunderstorm is. Uh, whereas, you know, I think uh, in history they were used for uh, artillery. You know, telling how far away uh, your your shell was hitting that type of thing. Almost, you know, basically all features on watches are are kind of like that. But if you're talking about extreme features, there are other. I mean, there's other extreme. Uh, you know, case materials that people are using mm -hmm. that are super hard, this type of thing, or like um, you're talking about like ceramics and materials like that. The hardness of something like titanium, I mean, nobody ever broke their watch in half. <laughs> I mean, it's happened probably in sure. you know in history, but um, typically the hardness of um of titanium, for example, that people you know often tout is uh, not not very useful probably it, it's great that it's it's super hard you know that it's not less hard than steel mm -hmm. uh it scratches more easily and it's mm -hmm. lightweight so those are those are good as well um and then in terms of other complications i i always i'm always enamored with a mechanical moon phase or um I mean, there's so, some some watches that are just so extreme they layer complications on top of complications. Can you mm -hmm. can you actually walk through a few of those for people who may not know about various you know extreme complications in watches? Just what are some of your favorite others? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can call any of them extreme. I'm trying to think of what an extreme complication would be. Well, I mean, okay. Here, let me back up then. So I'm holding here. I have an Orient dive watch. An Orient dive watch. This is a $300, $350 watch I got a, a few years ago. It is nice. stainless steel. It is. It has a date function and a rotating bezel. I think it's very handsome. And uh, it says it's water resistant to 200 meters. So there's no escape valve on this. So I would say that anything that isn't on this watch, if it's on a dive watch... I would consider a little excessive, not in a negative way. I just mean like extra. So beyond a standard watch, what are some of those features that like moon phases and other complications like a chronograph uh, that, that you love? Sure. Uh, I mean, there, there are tons. Um, the moon phase is what people often refer to is as poetic complications, like divers might use them um to keep track of uh uh say when there's going to be a bright moon for diving at night i i've heard i've heard that people find that useful um there are tide charts even which can mm -hmm. be useful calendar complications there are chiming mechanisms which are really really cool but they tend to also be really really expensive sure um, basically anything you add to a watch in, in terms of like the mechanics, especially with these complications tend to raise the price. Um, if we're talking about dive watches, there are examples of depth meters 
And, really? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. They must work on like a pressure sensor of sorts. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm planning to do a whole uh, whole thing about that Ooh, coming up soon. Blowing up your spot. Okay. <laughs> keep your eyes keep keep your eyes peeled, everybody, for, for that rundown. I, I don't know if you can help me peg this or not, but you know, it's related to the last question I asked. I've got again this three hundred ish dollar orient. Is there a, like a price threshold? When you would expect to start seeing uh, things like helium escape valves on, say, specifically a dive watch, it might be that might be hard to pin down um, exactly. But they're not they're not going to be on Orient dive watches, probably. Um, other brands that are known for this feature, uh, besides um, Rolex and Omega, which we've already mentioned, is Doxa. Doxa mm-hmm. developed one of the earliest ones around uh, around the same time as Rolex, um, and their watches are definitely going to be a much more affordable way to get this uh, kind of, you know, the history, the hardcore specs, and um, the helium escape valve valve if uh, that's what you want. Um, Doxa is a good thing to look at for people that are interested in this. What is the? I kind of know this is like a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred. Is that about where Doxas begin? Yeah, but probably these ones with the um, the helium escape valves are going to be a bit more than that, more like two, three thousand. I'm thinking. I'm familiar with the Doxa Shark Hunter. I love the that model. We we did a video uh, involving one. I think late last year, and it's just really kind of a quirky, incredible, attractive watch. Really, really sort of smitten with it. Yeah, yeah. People, uh, I mean, it's got a, a following. It's really unique. They're they're best known for, um, well, they're partly known for having pioneered the orange dial. They have, uh, that, that's kind of another example of a, of a feature that was developed uh, for a certain utility that is now no longer, you know, it is now recognized and no longer really valid for that utility, but that people still kind of love. So people thought, the orange dial was going to be more uh, visible and more legible underwater. It turns out that the red uh, spectrum of color is like among the first to disappear as you go down. Right. So yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to help you much. Contrast is what you're looking for, for legibility, um, regardless of the color, probably. Gotcha. That's uh, close to mind. The red underwater. I believe submarines used to use red light inside, and now they use blue because it's it provides a higher contrast, uh, but still sort of stealthy. So let's end on this. You're talking about these features on a watch basically being sort of style choices anymore, or for lack of a better term, kind of bragging rights for an owner. Like, I've got this amazing piece of tech, and I'm infatuated it with it and i want the world to see it are dive watches still kind of the pinnacle of the and correct me if i'm getting the terminology wrong but the pinnacle of a tool watch that people are wearing as a style statement i mean i would say yeah i mean dive watches are they must be the most popular category um what makes let's say a a sea dweller different from a submariner i think like you know this this i think is maybe an interesting distinction to make is, you know, a sea dweller is, it's, it's larger. First of all, it's, it's rated to go deeper underwater mm-hmm. and it's got the 
helium escape valve. But otherwise, the the um, the design is very similar. I mean, it was actually debuted. In 1967, as part of the Submariner line, then it kind of became its own collection. But I mean, looking at a picture of them, you might not tell, like at first glance, which is which. You have to keep your eye on the uh, that little the the nine o'clock position on the case. Look for the hole. And uh, now no, that it says every... it on the dial. No, no, probably. no. That's not the way to do it. No one's going to be able to do that. You have to look for the <laughs> the pin. Okay, so you can you can cheat a little bit. You can read it on the dial. But um, now that everybody's informed by your post and this conversation, they'll be able to spot uh, an escape valve from across a room. Uh, good. Well, Zen, thanks for giving us the rundown. This is um, you've written a lot of these further detail posts on a lot of different features, and we'll be covering more of them in the future, uh, along with all our other categories from Gear Patrol. So appreciate your your insights and uh, the, uh, the in-depth, in-depth pun. Is that a pun? Uh-huh. Yeah, in-depth lesson. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to my friend Ben Lowry, who is a uh, commercial diver who uh, educated me on a lot of this stuff, gave me a lot of insight, and he's written about dive watches as well. So check him out. Okay. And uh, he, he's the ultimate uh, resource. For this Great. specific question, for sure. Cool. Well, uh, that's what the show notes are for. Maybe we can, uh, you can pass me some links, and we can share with sure, sure. Uh, listeners down there. Uh, I want to know. I want to know what's in Ben's collection, but that's maybe something we need to save for another time. For now, I just want to thank everyone for joining today. Um, this is the Gear Patrol podcast. You are listening to it. That means you like products and product culture, and I hope that also means you're subscribed. So, uh, if you're not please do. And while you're at it, if you do enjoy the podcast, please give us a review and a rating. Uh, Those five-star reviews help more people get on the conversation uh, so they can identify helium escape valves and uh, hear our product experts go on and on with their encyclopedic genius like Zen here. If you do have, uh, if you do leave a review, a five-star there, Drop a comment or a question in uh, in there with it, and we'll try to address it on a future episode. Uh, you can also get in touch with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Our handle is Gear Patrol. It's one word. Or you can email me directly at podcast at gearpatrol.com. Zen, thanks again for tuning in with me today. It's good to chat with you. Thanks, Nick. And everybody else, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining. And until next time take care and now to hit the podcast escape valve <laughs> <laughs>